0: Unpeeling the Onion, a podcast that explores the drives and motivations that guide people's best work. Other podcasts ask what people do or how they do it. Unpeeling the Onion asks why. My name is Marcus Banks. Our third conversation is with Amy Brand, director of the MIT Press. Amy has also served as vice president of digital science and assistant provost at Harvard. Her long and varied career provides keen insights into the challenges and opportunities facing university presses, as well as the need for a more dynamic and inclusive system for recognizing the many distinct contributions to a scholarly publication. One technical note, this interview is recorded in two parts, and you may hear brief echoes at certain points. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Amy Brand. Thanks again for agreeing to do this I d- sure. really appreciate it and I the first question I had sent you formally uh, as a, so to speak um, is at MIT press uh, obviously your your current role is director of the press and you're feeling pretty optimistic about it. all of all of the or a lot of the discourse about university presses is is, you know, they're struggling, uh, The they can't, the margins are high, they can't publish as much as they used to because of various factors, and then libraries aren't buying as much, so it's all doom and gloom and horror, <laughs> but you seem to be pretty optimistic about what's happening at MIT, so I was just wondering if, which is great, so I was just wondering if you could uh, share your reasons for that feeling.
1: Sure, um, well, in, in part it's because I'm new, I've, I've been here for, you know, seven <laughs> months and a it- it is it is definitely a, a challenging time and a challenging environment because the core business models are in flux, you know, both on the books and journal side. Not not all university presses publish both books and journals, but we have large programs on both sides, um and, and things are changing. I don't know if I could do this just anywhere else um other than mit you know it's it's because the way the institute views everything it does and the way it views the press as in addition to being a self-supporting business it's also a research enterprise in its its own right you know and so my mandate if you will is really to push the boundaries of scholarly publishing and do really innovative experimental things um obviously all well supporting you know the the core business um It was very surprising to me, you know, print books uh, continue to do really, really well, and even if when you have a strong digital program, the market is still um, demanding print, so it's a bit of a juggling act, it's continuing to support our still thriving, and really grow our still thriving print books business on the one hand, and, and then, you know, create. The, the academic press of the future by focusing on what all the opportunities are for digital. So I'm I'm optimistic because I think we can do at MIT Press um, something that that probably takes its cues more from commercial players than from other university presses in terms of insourcing our digital platform that's going to allow us to do all the cool things we want to do with ebook bundles and chapterization um, and mm-hmm. online communities. You know, the press when I was at the press in the '90s as an editor. Uh, I was involved in helping create one of the first online communities. This was in cognitive science, which was my academic background, but also what I was acquiring in. And that model has has continued to grow, and we've taken the underlying software and repurposed it as something that we can use across a range of of um, you know areas and. and and content disciplines, and so in my conversations with the faculty at MIT, you know, I'm often hearing not like, "Oh, I want to start a journal, or I want to write a book," but I want to create a conversation space for for my students and my colleagues to come share published and unpublished material and have certain you know conversation and interactivity. So that's that's. Also where we're putting a lot of our focus and resources right now
0: do you so you feel that there's a synergy or a complementarity between the print and the digital or is there, are there ever uh, points when um, there are tensions between or how are you said it was a juggling act and obviously you're still figuring it out because you're still very or you're you know new in the role but how uh, how do you what are some ways that use strategies to balance that juggling act it, it, you know if you're presented with we need x dollars to keep the uh the print runs in cognitive science, and those those seem to be the same dollars that should go towards some digital initiative. You know, just
1: it's just human nature that dichotomies are so seductive, right? We like to think, well, it was one way before, and now it's flipped, and now it's another way. You know, and it was the old the old model is paid and print, and the new model is digital and open. And the reality is not so simple. It's not like we've gone from black to white. We've gone from a uniform model to a multiplicity of models. And and different authors want different things, and different readers want different things. You know, I, I, I see the right path as being really responsive to those different needs, needs of different academic communities. Um, you know, some fields are much more data-intensive than others, for example, and 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 also... Um, you know, I, it's an overused word. I hate to use it, but really, agile. <laughs> um, I would say in, nimble. In, in, let's say you nimble. know how yeah. nimble is a good word. Let's say that. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So that that's definitely one of our, our core values. Um, so I don't. I mean, there is a tension in the sense of you know we were fairly early. This is you know when I wasn't here to to get on the XML workflow. Um, bandwagon and there's a lot of work that goes on in our edp or editorial um, design and production department around tagging to enable us to make the most out of our digital content and it's stuff that we're not necessarily taking full advantage of yet and so yeah i mean we'll often hear well you know why are we doing all this work if we're still really just focused on these print books you know why are we doing all this tagging we're not even linking references we're not even so that's the kind of you know tension that I see, but I do do you know my responsibility is sort of to make good on that commitment and actually show that you know all of that work that we're doing around the digital is going to pay off. Um, so.
0: So yeah. Just, so it, it's not a yeah exactly. It's not a one one to zero black or white. You know whatever. It's just it's a yeah. it's a constant little uh, another another word I get tired of is it's iterative, <laughs> but but it really yeah. is. It, I, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. We're going at at digital science we'd always joke about. Oh no, don't say you're going to leverage the synergies again, you know. It's
0: just yeah. <laughs> leverage the <laughs> synergies toward an iterative agile nimble future. <laughs> uh so um okay no yeah that's great that makes sense and I'm glad you are so, again uh, the 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 most university press at least the surface discourse is um a little less um, sanguine or hopeful than what you've, so that's great that you're, I want to maybe step back to what I, I mean, met you at. Go ahead. Go ahead. I
1: want to put up, I just want to put out there completely openly. It's really tough right now. It's, you know, yeah. I, I refer to it internally as it's a perfect storm for us right now. Um, but, but I love that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to complex problems <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and I, and I, I do think that there's, there's a way out for us um, or I should say a way forward you know yes. when I talk about where I'm where I'm trying to get you know I want us to be which is to a certain extent where we were you know more in the past than where we are in the present but you know at a point where you know we're doing the best academic publishing we can possibly be doing in whatever the right formats are um, but that we also have, uh, you know, the, the cushion financially to do the kind of innovation and experimentation that is a core part of MIT Press's identity. And I think we're very different, again, from a lot of our peer university presses because, you know, that kind of, that's, that's just a key part of our personality. You know, we're experimental, we're, we're quirky, we do irreverent things. You know, we try to be out in front of the digital side, um, and so you know, there's, there's, I think there's a lot more humanities book based um, legacy and history in some of the the other academic presses.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the one characteristic of MIT is that's helpful in this time of flux is the is that that the per, the experimental back uh, history. Is where you would come to my attention a few years ago was with a paper about needing a, a bigger typology of authorship, and, and especially in multi-authored papers, uh, traditionally, the particularly the contributions of the middle authors, let's say it's a 10-authored paper, the authors who listed third, fourth, fifth, and those places tend not to get noticed as much as the first author or the last author's uh, contribution, depending on the uh, disciplinary uh sort of guidelines about where do you place the senior author first or last, and so you had proposed a typology about uh, diversifying contributorship roles, and so maybe this was in 2013 or 12, I always forget that year of that paper, in eLife, and so if you could uh, sort of talk us through what's happened since then with respect to to the progress on that, which I thought uh, this would just... This I think has came up in the context of an article level metrics at initiative sponsored by the Public Library of Science, which uh, was again, which was another attempt to get past just tracking citation counts and all of the traditional metrics. So, so w- what's happening on that front today?
1: Sure. No, I well actually the uh, contributor role project uh, came about through a group of us who were involved in ORCID, the the original board of directors for. Orchid, um, we pulled together. I think it was in 2012 a, a conference at Harvard with stakeholders from the academic community, publishing, libraries, um, technology, and um, and it's it's still going strong. Uh, the you know the motivation, as you said, was at the time I was working on tenure and promotion at Harvard and was noticing that people who played particular roles in co-publication sort of ended up you know the short end of the stick uh, even if the work that they were doing was cutting edge and creative you know so for example if your role is more along the lines of methodology like a biostatistician um, you might be creating a completely new methodology but you're going to be in middle author position and then if you have a list of publications that don't show you as a lead author which depending upon the field is first author or last author um, that can be a problem or it makes it harder for the people evaluating you because we rely so much on this stuff. So yes, in that way, it is very much connected to the, the work on metrics that I'm also uh, involved in. Um, but so we, what, what ended up happening is over uh, a period of a couple of years in a collaboration among uh, several publishers and working closely with Liz Allen, who was at the Wellcome Trust at the time, Um, we were able to pull together a 14-term contributor role taxonomy called credit. And it has now been adopted as an option by um, Cell Press. And um, they've actually been conducting some studies on how researchers like using it and how easy it is to use, and and the results have been quite positive. There was also integrated into um, Mozilla Badges, um, by Biomed, if for use in Biomed Central journals. And and there there have been a, a bunch of other adoptions. Liz is now at Faculty of the 1000, or uh-huh. F1000, and, and they're adopting credit as well. And we've been talking about it here at the MIT Press. Um, again, it's just it's very s- sort of straightforward and subjective, or I, I'm sorry, I meant to say sort of descriptive as opposed to um, quantitative. The idea is that... Um, you know, authors can get together and decide what their major roles are and capture it in a structured way as opposed to just having some free text um, statement about who did what so that over time as this gets adopted it can be become part of the article metadata. It's still moving forward in partnership with CASRAE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an organization that's providing some support. Uh, it has been integrated into uh, Aries Editorial manager there's a way to capture it in uh the jats dtd as well um so we we we're we're keeping it moving forward
0: and that reminds me i i think for the london school of economics blog you had written about how you've been to uh, over the years you had gone to academic conferences about these issues and there was a perception that the all of the power or uh sort of resided with the provost or whomever was in charge of academic appointments such that if if a university just you know as it were flipped the switch and said we're going to go with the credit typology or we're going to use altmetrics everything else would flow but I think uh, in your experience and as it shows and as it as um, credit is now sort of populating across all these others it's actually a uh, well I mean if you could explain about the multi-factors I mean you you had indicated that that was perhaps too simplistic view that all the that it, that it would that the the linchpin of the of the, of the change in, in crediting and scholarly evaluation. Yeah, I, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I don't. You know, I I I see altmetrics metrics and I see things like credit um, and a whole range of other initiatives in the scholarly communication space around um, you know how to pre- tell a different story about the impact of your research as ways of empowering researchers to present their own record of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, with additional information that will you know ultimately i think broaden the list of things that people who are making these decisions consider to be relevant right i mean i mean my my perspective from to the extent that i was you know on the inside or got, got an inside view into this process at least at one university it's just it's a lot of it has to do with what you know we can conveniently refer to. I mean, it's easy to look at citations and count citations, and it's easy to look at impact factors of journals or sort of shortcuts or heuristics. And we, we don't have anything similar in, in other areas, which is you know why the the way to it's a it's a long process. But you you want to standardize something like this and and make those indicators you know readily accessible to people. Um, so, ideally you would say well if, if you're sitting on a committee evaluating someone for an appointment you should have, you know, read all of their work and come up with your own opinion about the quality of their work. But that's, you know, and, yeah. and 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 to a certain extent yes, I mean, I think that, that 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 does happen, but it's it's sort of human to kind of rely on these um readily, readily available quantitative signals.
0: Right. No, nobody has enough time. We have to rely on sort of a metric, however flawed. I it, is NISO? Um, I, I I just am recalling. I think I met you at the plus article level works, workshop metrics workshop. But NISO is also, or at least at one point, was interested in uh, standardizing some some. Some attempts at uh, you know maybe modernizing the citation list. I mean, are you? I can also look it up myself. But are you aware of any connections between credit, credit, and NISO's work?
1: Well, NISO was folks from NISO have been involved and and were part of the working group for a long time, and so and and have been also helpful in terms of integrating credit or creating this kind of awareness within the JAF community around credit. But it hasn't, you know, we have, haven't really gotten to the point of an official NISO endorsement. So CASRAE is also um, kind of a standards-type consortium that has a lighter weight approach, okay. I guess. And uh-huh. so but one of the things that was nice about this project was the way in which NISO and CASRAE were uh, collaborating around it.
0: Oh, good, um, yeah. So, so, But at the moment, you would say CASRAE is taken... Yes, as it were, yeah. the ball a little further at this yes, juncture. The, yeah, the
1: credit taxonomy is integrated into the CASRE data dictionary.
0: Yeah, great, great. And you, we were just speaking about uh, heuristics and human nature, and uh, that was actually maybe a good segue to the final question. You, your own uh, training is in cognitive science, and, and your first stint at MIT Press, you uh, you helped uh, the, you were in charge of the cognitive science publication portfolio there. Uh, how? So maybe a little bit about where, what specifically you study within cognitive science and, and any connections you might see between that and the, the work you've, you've done over the years.
1: Um, well, it, initially, there was a, a very strong connection between my academic studies and my academic work and what I was doing in publishing. I had... Uh, I was an undergraduate major in linguistics, and then, when I came to MIT as a grad student, did my degree in cognitive science, but still very much focused on on language and linguistics. Um, I think that and then when I went into publishing, it was to be an acquisitions editor acquiring books in those fields and and that was great because i I knew you know all of I knew the community very well, and it's really satisfying to be in publishing when you feel like you understand well there's a need for this book and and that person would be the ideal person to write it and 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 to make that happen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think that you know my i've I've always been interested in or attracted to very kind of complex problems and also into um formalizing things that at first seem unformalizable and you could sort of say that about about language and so I've always seen on some level this thread through my professional work and that interest in, you know, in language. I mean, I can remember being in the seventh grade when we were diagramming sentences, and I thought that was the most, most beautiful thing ever, that you could do that, <laughs> right? You could take a sentence of language and you could provide this structure, and then lo and behold, I'm, like, studying syntax, and lo and behold, I'm studying, well, how does that work in the brain, and how do kids learn it, and, and um. And then, and certainly in my professional life, I've I've loved being able to sort of walk into a very complex problem space and provide some structure around it. So there's that kind of connection. But I think there's also the connection of, of you know I've, I have been an academic. I think I think like an academic, and I think of myself as having this domain of study that is scholarly information and scholarly publishing. You know, and so I, I consider it to be sort of um, an interesting experimental calling in and of itself and and that you know and, and that's definitely why it makes sense to be doing this at MIT because that's just the whole culture here you know so even though we're running this business that produces books and journals it's it's very much well how do we you know how do we innovate in partnership with Academics here and other initiatives on campus that really want to transform scholarly communication and scholarly publishing.
0: I've heard the phrase "wicked problems." Actually, somebody else they interviewed also talked about that. Is that where? Yeah. You know, everything is is seemingly so inextricably tangled. It's like where where would you begin? But I guess you're something in you is drawn to that rather than I just want yeah. to focus on this one thing.
1: I've never i never used that phrase myself, but I, I like it. And it, it does have a sense of sort of like a, you know, moth to a flame of just, I, I can't help myself. It's just so complex. You know, I, I got to dive into
0: it. Um, so. And so, I mean, so I would say on that, maybe it's kind of a, a wrap up I mean, the fact that uh, the credit taxonomy has reached the stage that it has. I mean, that uh, I would have thought, or, or at least at first glance that, Getting to that, where, where, as far as it's come, as would be, would have been very difficult because the the citation patterns are so seemingly set in stone, and 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 you know, like it's like, well, who's gonna? At first glance, kind of an un, unsexy problem, if you will, about how to how to untangle these contributors, but it but it has so much real impact on people's lives. I mean, I guess perhaps that was the, I mean, the, that might be the motivation, but and you've taken it and you've stuck with it to, to get it to a point where it's now. I mean, yeah, more well, more I has wish, to be I done. Mean, let's be-
1: Right, but Liz and I both wish that we had more time to help move it forward, and I don't want to leave um, kind of the false impression that, you know, this has succeeded and is going to be implemented everywhere. It's, you know, very, it's very gradual, little by little. We're so yeah. grateful to the support yeah. of the folks at Cell Press, and, um, and you know, I, I, I do, I I have. I'm about to fly off to um, Singapore next month to talk at a, a conference of medical and technical editors there about the taxonomy and. Liz and I are always writing something or talking to people about adopting it, but it's it will it will take time, but I think that sort of general concept i mean the the seed of it was already there because a lot of publishers, you know going back several years, including nature, for example, were requiring contribution statements. Several medical publishers for much longer than that, have actually been providing um you know controlled vocabularies around contribution as well, but they weren't standardized from one one publisher to another then there's a there's also a a very closely related effort being driven by force 11 and folks involved in vivo to extend this concept of role description into um scholarly outputs beyond uh you know beyond the journal article um and so you know i I have no doubt that whatever you know that we'll arrive at something but whatever it is will probably look a little bit different from where, where we are now but you know that's that's how you solve problems. You sort of put a stake in the ground and and you learn and you iterate. Oh, yeah. I think that, um, you know, I I do think it is, in terms of the uh, culture of science and the culture of the lab, it is an extremely meaty problem. And it's something, when we had done the initial studies around credit, and we had authors responding to us, and in addition to just, you know, rate your experience of how easy it was to use this taxonomy, and people would provide open comments, you know, it was often younger scholars saying, you know, oh my God, we need something like this, it's so unfair the way the, you know, the lab director will take credit for everything. And they haven't done anything, or the way the graduate student always gets, you know, shunted to the back of the list, even though they've done most work, and, and it, you know, it ultimately having some impact on that, and and um, you know, the careers of, of young researchers. Is that that's
0: really why we're doing this. Absolutely, I was. I think uh, that's a great place to end. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this third episode of Unpeeling the Onion, and special thanks to Amy Brand. For more details about what we discussed, please visit the show notes at unpeelingtheonion.tumblr.com.